Hello, and thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, the newest podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pynchon. My name is Cody. I am one of the co-hosts here. Hi, I'm Will. Hey, y'all. I'm uh, Luke. And as we talked about in our, I think in our introduction episode, um, I had initially started working on this project with uh, someone else. Uh, Her name is Katie. um, And we are lucky enough that she's actually been able to jump in and join us on this. So um, we're going to give her a couple minutes to introduce herself and kind of go over how uh, she got into Pinchon, what she likes about Pinchon, and kind of a, a rundown of everything that we did in the introductory episode. And then we'll get started on chapter four. So, uh, Katie, if you would, please. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the the introduction. Um, as he said, obviously, I did I did initially reach out to to try and get the podcast started. Because I've always loved uh, Thomas Pinchon. My introduction to him was mostly through the Inherent Vice film, actually. Um, I'm a really big fan of Paul Thomas Anderson's work as a director. And so when that movie got announced and they had a trailer for it, I was instantly interested because of all of the actors that were in it that were all incredible. And then I saw that you know title card that said based on the novel by Thomas Pinchon. And immediately I had to figure out what that meant, you know, who that was, what the book was about. And so I read Inherent Vice um, basically right before the movie came out in preparation to go see it and had no idea what it was that I had just read, but knew that I liked it a lot and then saw the movie and then returned to the book and found that not only from a standpoint of like a deconstruction of noir or hard-boiled sort of detective fiction, was it interesting, but it also had a lot of intensely interesting thematic elements due to paranoia, the changing of the times and sort of the decades that that book is set in and what that meant for the overall landscape of the country and instantly knew that I had to read basically everything else by him. Um, The only book of his that I have yet to read now is Against the Day, just because it's so long. I haven't had a chance to really sit down and and dedicate the time that that book needs to go through it. Um, But I love all of his work. Uh, The Crying of Lot 49 is probably... My overall favorite, if I'm being honest, uh, with all of his work, I, I love V, I love Gravity's Rainbow, obviously, and Inherent Vice, certainly. Um, but The Crying of Lot 49 has always been, I think, while thematically similar to the rest of his work, has been different enough where it offers a, a interesting, not only introduction to his work, but kind of an aside to a lot of the other stuff that he went about talking about. Um, outside of Thomas Pinchon, I, I love all postmodern and, and post-postmodern literature as well. Um, big fan of Robert Coover and, and Gaddis and William Gass and all of those sort of uh, key names in that genre. Um, big fan of Don DeLillo as well. He's an enormously important writer to my development as far as like reading critically and trying to understand the deeper themes behind things. Um, I'm also a big fan of David Foster Wallace and all of the work that he did in the 90s that kind of gave rise to post-postmodern literature and kind of the new sincerity movement. Um, and then outside of that kind of more to use a maybe an overwrought phrase of academic literature i'm a big fan of science fiction um that was kind of my introduction into reading a lot as as a child i read a lot of science fiction and then general literary fiction these days is really really interesting there's a lot of interesting things being done by um predominantly female authors for their debut novels that i've taken note of too um outside of reading i love movies obviously i'm also a big fan of music um i collect and and listened to a lot of records and was in a band for a while. I play both drums and, and bass guitar. Um, and I do some painting and that's probably about everything about me. Awesome. 
Well, I'm I, I'm excited for when whenever we get around to against the day, or if you just happen to get to it before we do, um, to get your opinions on that. That's my personal favorite, and it was the second one I read. I was like you; I got into him through uh, the the movie. So, um, but that's cool. I that's awesome that forty nine lot forty nine is your favorite. I think that's gonna be um, really helpful to our discussion on it. You may have more. Um, insights that we haven't thought of or, or ways to approach it that we haven't thought of how many do you know roughly like have you read it several times i would imagine i have uh this would be like my fourth or fifth read through the book i believe um oh, okay. there's a there's another interesting uh literary podcast whose name is unfortunately escaping me right now um who did an episode on lot 49 with this british uh literature professor who's read it like 38 times Jeez. and yeah hearing her perspective on the book is what convinced me to go back to it after i read it the first time and then really like dig into it you know through subsequent readings as well that's cool um well let's go ahead and get started um will do you have a summary for us yes i do and for once it's not overly long <laughs> <laughs> all right uh so at the beginning of this chapter, Oedipa has become infatuated with understanding. Searching in Verity's will for hints, signs for her to navigate this maze of information by she is made desperately motivated as she comes to recognize her own ignorance in this task. She begins to see Driblet's perspective on projection. In her striving for knowledge, she decides to attend a stockholder meeting at Yoyodyne. Surrounded by old leches, she seems to learn nothing from this, beyond the lyrics of a few anthems to the aerospace giant. As the attendants Split into groups to tour, Oedipa gets turned around. She wanders the Easter-colored offices, developing a hint of class while exits elude her. Instead of a door out, she stumbles into an engineer doodling the same symbol she'd met in the Scope's bathroom. He is Stanley Kotex, standard-issue nerd type, and after a botched introduction, he requests that as a shareholder, she get the company to drop their claws on patents. He seems discouraged that the business can take his and his colleagues' work for as little as a salary while preventing them from developing their own inventions. Oedipa teases him about this, and he begins to describe the invention of a former co-worker, John Nefastus, the Nefastus machine. This machine seems to operate on a faith-based principle, wherein believing that James Clerk Maxwell's thought experiment of entropy, Maxwell's demon, would manifest one such entity and produce perpetual motion. Oedipa points out the fault in the idiom that identification and allocation is a fork, but Kotex, the professional, shuts that nonsense down. He goes on saying that the only works for some sensitives and starts giving Oedipa a waste address to inquire more from Nefastus himself. Oedipa slips up, though, asking if he means a P.O. box in Berkeley, and Kotex realizes she isn't actually in the loop. He refuses to say any more than explaining that waste is pronounced one letter at a time. W-A-S-T-E. Returning to the scope with Metzger a few days later, her steadfast guide Mike Fallopian pontificates on the lost innocence of the modern engineer, which inspires a drunken argument with Metzger about politics. Meanwhile, Oedipa tries to reconsider some other signs. Literally, on Lake Shore in Fangosa Lagoons, a plaque that had been mounted, having a dispute between Wells Fargo couriers and a band of raiders stressed in a lack, and how one of the victims had inscribed a cross, or T, in the dirt. Oedipa wonders if that might have inspired some of Driblet's choices in staging the play, but he doesn't pick up when she calls. She heads to the used bookstore, and the owner implies some sort of hubbub over the book containing the courier's tragedy. On the copyright page, Oedipa is directed to a previous edition and decides to visit the publisher for details rather than wait for a library loan. Some days earlier, she had driven to a nursing home owned by Pierce in further pursuit of a comprehension of her ex-lover, trying to develop something. 91-year-old Mr. Thoth. 
The Dream, which blended stories his own grandfather had shared with Looney Tunes. His grandfather had ridden for the Pony Express and told him tales of real and false Indian raiders. The false Indians came only at night, wearing bone charcoal stained feathers, and bore a name he believed Mexican or Spanish, as well as a signet ring bearing the same symbol Kotex had drawn. Again, she seeks knowledge from Fallopian, the resident expert on private mail services of America. He has nothing but paranoia to share, not recognizing the drawing. Her next sign would come from a stamp specialist, Genghis Cohen. They had contracted to serve to grade in Verity's election, and he has identified mistakes, indications of forgeries, including a watermark of the same shape as had crested Mr. Thoth's ring. Cohen points out that this waste symbol seems like a crude imitation of the Thurnan Taxes trademark post-horn, with a mute affixed. He even found a stamp sharing the same typo Oedipa had noticed on her letter from Mucho, but this one was ten years old. Seemingly together, they realized that these must have been the efforts of some massive conspiracy extending centuries into history, assumes been a known quantity to the government before the spell loses its effect on him. He points out that his dandelion wine, made from flowers which had grown at a now-demolished cemetery, seemed to remember springtime and ferment again in accord with its living cousin's blooms. Oedipus sees this as a sorrowful indication of some eternal spirit. So, I'm, I think right off the bat, I, I kind of want to get a, an overall feel that, that everyone had from this chapter. Um, Luke, wh- how, how did you kind of come away from it? Yeah, um, this chapter does seem to be um, a little bit... It's not as uh, it's harder to draw conclusions from this chapter. I would say it's a little bit. It seems to be kind of building up to chapter five a little bit more. Um, there's not a lot of um, like it, it's it's. I struggle with calling it rising action. Like I called chapters one and two, but it does seem to be. It seems to be building towards something rather than to be something in and of itself. If that makes sense, um, it seems to be kind of setting up uh Oedipa's kind of uh journey through San Francisco in chapter five and then the conclusion of the book um especially with the with the introduction of the this discussion on stamps and um I don't know I did really enjoy the the Pony Express discussion with Thoth um that was something I used to I used to as a as a child I would read like YA uh, about the Pony Express, and I think I I learned about them in school, and that that whole thing of like you know, guys riding a horse for like fifty miles and then stopping and getting a new horse and having to you know go through mountain passes and and fight Indians um, and all that stuff was very exciting to me as a child. Um, so that's I really enjoyed that part. Um, but overall, I mean, it does seem to be it's just kind of more like. Um, widening of the cast of characters and um setting up for the the finale for the book yeah i'd I'd have to agree it definitely feels like it's uh in some sense tying up loose ends so that when everything explodes in the next two chapters uh you at least don't feel like it came out of nowhere yeah a good chunk of it is is all really set up i think the the most interesting aspect of this chapter though isn't just the fact that it represents Oedipa kind of journeying deeper into Inverarity's world by entering into these spaces that he has continued to finance through his life, but also the fact that this is the point of conversion for her, where this is no longer just graffiti on a bathroom wall anymore. There is somebody who is 
literally acknowledging that this is this WAST organization is an organization that does have separate mailing addresses and does have separate means of communication. And then on top of that, to have that be the beginning of the chapter, the conversation between her and Stanley Kotex, where she kind of does understand that this is a real thing that is still going on, to end the chapter then with the conversation over the stamps, where then she then sees that this is a symbol that's existed from, you know, the, the 1800s, possibly 1600s, means that there is a definitive history here that extends far past just whatever allusions to Pierce there might be or whatever is going on in the modern era. And so I feel like this chapter is definitely set up for the stuff in, in the following chapters for sure, but it also represents a point of conversion for Oedipa, where she is no longer just wondering if she has reason to be paranoid or wondering if there's reason to be concerned about this. It is now sort of settled historical fact that this is a real thing and that it is still going on, and she has become set on figuring out what is happening there. Yeah, I think the I'm, I think those are all perfect points. Um, I, I think you really see the the paranoia in Oedipo really start to kind of cement and and form a firmer foundation. Um, I I wrote in my notes several times, very in a very Doc Sportello kind of way. I, I have paranoia alert on several pages, um, and I, yeah, I think like it it really definitely widens the scope and and shows how much you know or how far how far this goes and whether you want to look at it as you know this is something that that Pierce is, has done and has a hand in and it's real or it's all just you know signals and that are being made into something that they're not like it's still it's it's becoming more and more real for Oedipa and I think as readers as well this is where it kind of starts to to cement all those kind of instances as well. Um, especially even in the opening paragraph, you have, you know, this encompassing of, of paranoia that is basically enveloping Oedipa. And it's, you know, we're realizing that this is becoming her whole world, her whole reason for existence now. Yeah, and on Oedipa herself, I mean... This is the first time that she's been able to come to someone, in this case, Genghis Khan, and actually have a conversation where someone else says, yeah, something is up. It confirms that she's not crazy. Yeah. Mike Fallon, you know, he's happy to be a sounding board. He's happy to give out, you know, the information for the stuff he knows. But he mostly just kind of rambles on and doesn't ever really respect her own conclusions. Genghis Cohen, you know, not going to say he's... Uh, you know, one of the the most compassionate characters in all of literature, but he at least views her as a person and responds to her as such. Yeah, and I think that I'm I'm glad you mentioned that viewing her as a person because we also see more instances, um, especially early in the chapter of of Oedipa just being you know as a lot of women were not not just were but still are you know treated by these old men in power or in positions of power you know you have there's a part on uh, in my edition on page 65 when she's at the yo-yo dine uh shareholders meeting and all these gross old dudes are sitting next to her and just like putting their hands on her um and then uh later on fallopian makes some misogynistic bullshit comment to her about you know uh, women um 
So I think, and I'm, Katie, I'm sure you've listened to the earlier episodes where we were kind of discussing that, you know, we, our, um, is this Penchon saying, you know, men can be disgusting and, and typically are, especially these types of men? Um, like, wh- how are you, as a, as a reader, interpreting that? I, I think that you are correct in that it is it is somewhat of just a statement of fact that this is how a lot of men treat women, especially in the days contemporary to when the book was published. That is certainly a part of it, I would say. Um, I think the the other part of it as well is tying into the larger thematic intents of the fact that Oedipa is someone who has been looking for liberation from her past experiences, but also a liberation that will lead her to an understanding of why it is that she feels trapped and why it is that she feels, um, you know, stuck in the tower to go back to the, to the illusion in chapter one to, to Rapunzel. And I think the other reason why this stuff constantly keeps happening, whether it's here, whether it's the, the, the game uh, in chapter two, where she puts on, you know, all the clothes to try and, and keep from, from being assaulted is to, to illustrate how she feels trapped and how she feels used and abused and and stuck where it is that she's at um and who it is that she's ultimately sort of trying to liberate herself from because she has no positive relationships with men whatsoever like her relationship with her husband is certainly fine they they are clearly not necessarily in love with one another because there is some dynamic of there being an open relationship or at least that they both tolerate the two of them sleeping around. But almost every other man that she interacts with over the course of the book does something to try and harm her, often physically or violating her personal space. And her therapist even um, is is far from being a, a well-balanced individual and and causes a lot of strife in her personal life as well. And so the one thing that she sort of has to hold on to is this relationship with Pierce from all those years ago, where, you know, as it recounts in the first chapter, that trip to Mexico that she took, where she kind of felt like maybe she was going to find something that that could take her away from the experiences that she was having, that could take her away from the tower, and yet she was still left there. And looking at that within a larger context of the chapter, to use the word, you know, conversion that I used earlier, of her converting her desire to to really track this down this conspiracy or this network of of an alternate post office as opposed to just being passive interest i think comes to the fact that she feels as though if she can figure this puzzle out if these puzzle pieces were left for her then she can somehow get to the understanding of her of her past experience and somehow let herself out of the tower without it being necessary for there to be other men around her. But that's going to require a lot of difficulty and a lot of recalling of past circumstances. So I don't think it's any mistake that as she continues to track this down, the the objects of her imprisonment continue to try and keep her imprisoned before she can actually make her way out of the tower and, and liberate herself and understand her life experience and the meaning of it all. Yeah, that... I, there's nothing I can add to that. That was, yeah. Yeah, that sounds, uh, you sh- probably should write that down, get it published. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this this chapter, I think Luke had mentioned that this is where we, we also get a lot of new characters. And I think, I could be wrong, but this I think this is the most characters we get since chapter one. 
Um, that I sounds right. counted five. Um, was there like, um, Luke, since you, since you mentioned it earlier, was there any particular character that you, um, really found more interesting than any other? I did. I was pretty interested in, uh, I think it's Stanley Kotex, um, and some of the stuff he was saying. It is, it is an interesting, um, way of way of viewing corporate corporate America and the corporate structure and the kind of soul crushing nature of working an office job. He does seem to kind of personify um, a lot of kind of the counterculture's uh, views on corporate America and office jobs and that kind of stuff. Um, it is really interesting to me that he, he goes on, he kind of relates um, the American history of invention and then kind of, Talks about how that's how that's now stopped because uh, you know scientists and researchers have to give up their patents to the corporation they work for, um, and how kind of dehumanizing and um, like whatever the opposite of motivating is, um, which is an interesting way of viewing it. I'm not you know I I'm not sure I don't know I'm pretty sure none of us are probably know much about the. The history of, of patents as it relates to corporate corporations in America and and all of that stuff, but it does that part I found really interesting, and it does seem to be kind of a uh, a a like a foreshadowing of the groundswell of the hippie movement and um, how how hippies viewed uh, straight you know people on the straight and narrow. Um, and how I I I had talked about I think it was in chapter one how Pynchon does seem to get into how dehumanizing capitalism is and how um, negative he gets about capitalism and Kotex does seem to be an extension of that uh, theme. Um, yeah. Yeah, I I kind of I, I'm with you on that. I I kind of took him as being almost. Pinchon inserting himself into the book in a way, just knowing his, especially as it's explored in, um, in against the day, um, his kind of view on how capitalism has really just wrecked shop in, in most of the world, not just capitalism in general, but like really more like late stage capitalism that kind of took effect, um, more so in the eighties, but the, the early seeds of it were kind of planted in the, the early part of the uh of the 1900s um and i felt like that was him kind of really putting his own voice into the story a little bit more especially as as an artist even though this was only his second book i think he kind of understands that that principle of like what kotex was dealing with of like nothing you create belongs to you anymore it belongs to whoever you make it for whatever company you make it for in the case of an author your work belongs to your publisher it doesn't belong to you. And as, as someone who works for corporate America, um, I see it all the time where I've seen people do these projects for various things um, that once it leaves their hands, it, you know, it, the word goes out about it and it's like, oh, look what we did. Look what our company did. And it's not just look what this individual who worked their ass off did. It's us as the company. We own everything that you're going to do at this point and there's nothing that the worker can do about that it is pretty easy to picture pension at boeing 
uh, spewing out yeah. a, a similar kind of dialogue to a fellow um, miscreant, you know, like in the, in the corporate office. And that that part yeah. does seem to be it's it's definitely a parody of office culture, like the endless nature of the office and all the little like subdivisions, all the little uh, I forget what the word is, but the the partitions and stuff. But that does seem to be it does seem to speak to the fact that he he does have experience working in office job. I think the other interesting thing, looking at that section and Stanley Kotex's presence in the narrative in particular as a like deconstruction of of capitalism, like we're talking about, where if you invent something you didn't actually invent it, the company did, is all of the inventors that he names there, and like Edison is obviously prominently in there, to a certain degree did the exact same thing, but they put their own name on it. Like yeah. Edison did technically invent the light bulb, but he was one of several scientists and engineers that were working on that. Um, he did technically invent the the movie camera, but that was built on pre-existing technology in collaboration with other engineers and scientists to to create that. So looking at it from a standpoint of a, of a deconstruction of, of what capitalism does to somebody's mental state, you can even look at a man like Kotex. He's inside the machine, right? He's working for this massive likely government subsidized, you know, weapons manufacturer and aerospace engineering company. And he believes that these other people from the past that he idolizes weren't in the same position that he was, but they likely were. It's just that they were the ones at the top who were able to put their name on things as opposed to being where he is at a cubicle, you know, in, in floor five of 20 in whatever building it was. So it also shows the the scale at which capitalism expanded from where it was in the early 1900s to just the 60s when the book is taking place. Yeah, just and just to clarify, um, it's actually um, only Oedipa and then uh, Fallopian actually mention any inventors. Um, Oedipa mentions Edison and then Fallopian talks about Edison uh, Morse and Bell, and then throws in Tom Swift in there, which is, I think, just normal pinching, throwing in false facts. Oh yeah, true. From them being just brought up in the text. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and and it's um not. I wonder about um how much Pynchon would have been aware of Edison's business practices in the '60s, because it's easy nowadays to say. Well, well, obviously, he would have known that Edison was basically the guy who pulled, or well, who who kind of invented that practice as a business person. You know, running a business where you assume all of the patents of your employees. Is it is it just a ton of irony there, or is he specifically, or or is it an unironic? Just hey, look, Thomas Edison invented all this stuff, and he was wrong because it was the '60s. It's hard to say, honestly. I think at that point, it was at least known how fiercely competitive Edison was and how he would stop at nothing to just destroy anyone who tried to do anything, you know, either in on the same line as him or the opposite. Like, everything that went down with him and Tesla, um, which also, you know, that guy gets explored in Against the Day as well. Um, that I think was pretty well known at that time, but I think a lot of the kind of cutthroat nature of what he was doing and, and all of that, I really don't know how much of that would have been known at that time. 
Yeah, definitely an interesting question to ask him if we were capable of doing so. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then um, what one other note is that uh, a common interpretation, and I, I can't remember where I got this interpretation from. It might have been from that podcast with that British professor that you mentioned, Katie, um, like, which I also cannot remember the name of. It has been annoying me since we started doing this show. Um, <laughs> either that or the Death is Just Around the Corner podcast um, discussed how Nefastus is probably Pynchon's uh, takedown of Jack Parsons, the guy who essentially invented American rocketry, who a lot of... Uh, wacky stuff while um, using his uh, mystical prowess, per se, to um, take advantage of nearly everyone around him, except for L. Ron Hubbard, who stole his wife. Interesting. Yeah, just, just I, as a result of that, I, I wonder whether Kotex should be read as a stand-in for Pin or as just an engineer. Because to be Swept up his frenzy and makes it pretty clear in some other books, Gravity's Rainbow in particular, that he does not respect people like Jack Parsons. One thing that I do think is can get kind of lost in the in the sea of information in this book is I'm under the impression that the Maxwell's demon, um, that that's a bit of a deep cut in in physics. Like it's not Kotex and Pynchon and Pynchon scholars seem to treat it as um like something everyone knows about you know what i'm saying like it it's treated in the book as if like oedipus should maybe already know about it and stuff but i'm under the impression that that was that was a pretty minor kind of footnote in the development of of physics uh, in the 1800s um and it's kind of just it's more it's kind of think more more defi- like it's more like mysticism than it is like actual physics but it's treated like super seriously in this book um, and treated super seriously by pension scholars. And um, I do think that that can get kind of lost in everything is that like, no, like it's not a it was never a major like theory in physics. Like nobody really cared about it because it's it's completely hypothetical and does not have any. Uh, it's basically like impossible uh, to replicate in the real world. Well, so I was, yeah, I was um, actually, I don't know why, really, in hindsight, um, I, in high school, they, my teacher, my physics teacher actually covered uh, Maxwell's demon. And the way it was presented there is as essentially as Maxwell and why for perpetual energy source to be created. That, that even the, the idea that even if you could just snap your fingers and make those things separate into the right column, left and right, you would need some kind of supernatural force to continue the sorting. But it is pretty obscure. Yeah, it, I think that it's because of the fact that the theory of it relies heavily on the second law of thermodynamics and entropy and things tending towards chaos and that if you can somehow find a way to control that you are sort of turning back the tide of of chaos to to create something close to equilibrium i think he's certainly using it for the thematic intent there um 
and looking at it from the the larger scope of kind of corporations, which I guess is a bigger theme more so in Gravity's Rainbow than here. So it could be a setup for some of what he was thinking about writing about with Gravity's Rainbow. But these these corporations trying to create inventions and then eventually weapons that that do break the laws of physics or at least seem to um, is directly tied to the fact that the guy's name is John Nefastus, which comes from a Latin word um, that literally means tragic or wicked and referred to a day of the week at one point in history where business wasn't supposed to be conducted. It is a deep cut and it is something that certainly I wonder how people would have gone about researching when the book came out. Um, but I do think it, it is an interesting inclusion for the the wider elements, not just of the book, but but sort of the rest of what Pynchon spent most of his career writing about. Yeah, in, in some, uh, just, just a footnote here, I guess, um, that in some sense, entropy is the main theme of all of Pynchon's writing, and I just feel like here he includes Maxwell's demon, Certainly. so that he can, um, so so that he can just have the direct metaphor on page somewhere. Yeah, it it makes me wonder, and I it, I really specifically when I was doing kind of research for this chapter, it got me to thinking about how he was doing all of this research because you know obviously this is the 1960s so the access to this information even given his uh connections at, at boeing and cornell he still is in this in his second book is pulling out all kinds of references and obscure concepts and because yeah i mean we may know maxwell's demon a little bit more nowadays uh but I, I don't think in the 60s, like Luke said, I don't think that was a well-known, you know, it was a thought experiment from the 1870s. So parts of it I can kind of get from his experience with, with Boeing, you know, the science and the math and all that, that's clearly kind of baked into what his areas of, of interest were and his work were. But then we, when, we, when we get to all like the Egyptian mythology and the history, and especially in things like Gravity's Rainbow and Against the Day, I have to wonder... How a how was he getting all of this information, and b was he doing it by himself or did he have? It, I feel like I read somewhere that he had people that were helping him with research. I don't know in what capacity, but I feel like I read an article somewhere where someone was mentioning you know he had these people that would kind of bring him information that he was looking for and and kind of help him with his research. Yeah, and then you've got to wonder, especially looking at this book and Inherent Vice, it's it's fairly clear that you know. Doc Sportello is, is an author self-insert to some degree or another. Um, you you got to wonder how much of that wandering around asking random people for random information was part of his process, especially back in the 60s yeah. and 70s. It would be fascinating to like read somebody who worked with him at Boeing just to see what he was like back then. Because he would have <laughs> yeah, no. it would have been so interesting to hear what it was that he was if he was truly just walking around and asking people questions, to wonder what sort of questions and what conversations he was trying to have with with, you know, aerospace engineers. Yeah. Well, cause that uh, kind of going back to I think we talked about it on a, a couple episodes ago, that article about the guy that smoked weed with him uh on the one night. Who mentioned that he that he didn't really talk much. He just sat there and listened. And I think that plays into that, that he was just really adept at knowing when to ask a question and then just shut up and listen to the response and just kind of soak all that in. 
And I think what really got me thinking about that was the the character of Mr. Thoth, uh, because we're going back with him to the Egyptian mythology that kind of runs throughout the book. Um, Luke had talked about the the Egyptian Book of the Dead a few episodes ago, um, and in Egyptian mythology, Thoth was in in a way kind of the creator of almost everything written, science, math, philosophy. He was a scribe, so he was kind of this historian slash scientist slash mathematician slash philosopher. He's kind of a Renaissance god in in a sense. And I, I don't think in the 60s, Egyptian mythology was a booming area of interest for a lot of people. And I, and I don't know how much there was as far as published work that could get out there that people could grab a hold of and, and research like this. Oh, the Theosophical. Just the Theosophical Society was around at the turn of the century, and they published a lot of stuff about Egyptian mythology. So, Okay. Yeah, you have to wonder if he was just going to like libraries or like even university campuses and just renting volumes of, of either like published essays or, you know, research papers on that stuff. Cause from, from the, the point of what was publicly available, like certainly not any well sort of digestible text that just sort of was an encyclopedia for any of that. Yeah. It, Every time I think about him doing research and and the quantity of information that he seems to know, whether he knows it on a deep level or just kind of a surface level, it always it's it's kind of a weird connection because it makes me think of uh, the, the, the character Stanley from Magnolia. Um, and there's a scene in that movie where he's just like it, right before the big climax of the film. And I don't want to spoil that part for anybody who hasn't maybe seen that movie. If you haven't, go watch it. It's amazing. Um, he's just sitting in a library that he's broken into and he's just got a table full of books and he's just absorbing all of this information. And that's kind of the image I have of him writing, you know, like this and gravity's rainbow, just this person just obsessed with taking information in and then using it to just create these little characters that are only going to be in a, in a book for a page or so just to throw in a name or throw in a random reference, but that has merit and connection in the narrative where it is. Yeah, and that's one of the the aspects of his work that I've always loved is it seems not only just very intentional to the thematic intent of the book as far as why he's including these things, but it also, if the reader is responding to the work, it also pulls them into the world that he's trying to create and the themes that he's trying to impart. Because, you know, we can read these books in 2023 and then immediately Google who Thoth is or what Maxwell's demon is or may have some you know, knowledge of those things through cultural osmosis. But if you're the average reader in, in you know, the, the mid-60s who picks up this book and goes through it, for you to figure out what he's talking about and gain the knowledge that he is trying to, to impart would require a lot of legwork to go to the library and surround yourself with books at a table or to, to go speak with people who would be experts on the subject just to to further understand what the meaning of the book is. And so I think a lot of it is also there to try and create buy-in from, from the reader of, you know, looking to, to Bleeding Edge, which is obviously a long way off from any kind of reading for this podcast, but it feels like that book is sort of Thomas Pinchon trying to impart his final sort of lessons about paranoia and conspiracy to, to his readers, which kind of reshapes a lot of what he does 
in my mind through through the books where he was leaving clues or hints behind for people to start thinking more critically. And I think putting these elements of Egyptian mythology or weird, obscure, you know, physics experiments is there to try and sort of put a different mode in the reader's brain to go do that research and to go find out what he's talking about and to just become a more inquisitive, more critical reader, not just of his work, but in general. This is kind of um, building off what y'all have been saying a little bit, but my little personal theory, which occurred to me, I think on my first reread um, about a month or two ago before we even started the podcast with Maxwell's Demon is one thing that I try to focus on with Pynchon is the the mix of high and low art. Um, even in this chapter, we get a reference to Porky Pig and I think Bugs Bunny um, right next to some kind of, you know, like seemingly historical, historically accurate um mentions and information about the Pony Express, which, um, you know, with Maxwell's Demon, it's all about sorting high energy and low energy. And it, it does seem to me that high energy could be, you know, like a reader of his books, um, perhaps unconsciously, is going to be sorting the references and allusions and a bunch of different stuff into high art and low art. And that's one thing that I think Pynchon does really well. Um, is mixing high and low art, high and high art illusions and low art illusions. Um, I, I think Pynchon himself would probably maybe maybe kind of sneer at the at, at there being a difference between the two, because I do think that he he treats both pretty equally. But that is kind of a an interesting to me at least way of viewing the Maxwell's Demon as kind of a metaphor for for reading Pynchon. I had never thought about that, but that's yeah, that's a really interesting approach to that uh that idea the the other character that i really kind of liked even though his time in this chapter was incredibly short was the the bookstore owner uh zaf um i think it was luke that mentioned way back in like episode one maybe even that a lot of pinchon's novels have a sort of detective vibe to them obviously some more than others when when you get to like inherent vice and bleeding edge but um his his the particular scene in which he is introduced reminded me so much of like old dashiell hammett and raymond chandler novels where this guy emerges from the darkness into this small like single bulb of of light and that's literally what happens he emerges uh from a wan cone of 15 watt illumination and that immediately just, I, I think it was you, Luke, that mentioned that. And that just made me think about that because Pynchon's known for his, his love of specifically So Many Doors, which is a great book. If, if y'all haven't read it, I, I really recommend it. It was kind of hard for me to find, but it was really worth, worth finding it. Yeah, I think you could even say that some of the descriptions of um, Oedipus time in the Yo-Yo Dine facility are even somewhat noir-esque. Like... The inclusion of, of talking about the sound that her heels are making on the floor, drawing attention to her and like echoing out through the room. Those are all ve very much details that to me recall uh, Chandler in particular. Um, so to to kind of move away from the characters, I want to kind of get into a few things in the plot. Um, obviously, we, we talked about the the real onset of paranoia in here, which has always been, I feel, kind of bubbling you know, in the early chapters. Um, and it's really starting to 
you know, boil, get to a boiling point at this point. Um, there's another scene involving sunglasses in here that, that popped up. And I know we've talked about this before and it, it made me think this time when I read through it, that perhaps this is a mechanism by which Oedipa is made to feel comfortable. I know I do this myself sometimes if I'm in a place where I don't necessarily either want to be, or I don't know a lot of the people there having sunglasses on is as silly as it sounds like really just kind of helps me feel like I'm disappearing just a little bit. And I, I kind of got the feeling that she was doing that as well, because when it happens is seemingly in these times when she's feeling, you know, maybe a little overwhelmed by what's going on and that's giving her a sense of security. I don't know if y'all read it the same way. I definitely did. Uh, in fact, I was wondering if I, I can't remember which of you said it um, in the last episode or two talking about um I think I think it was last episode talking about Metzger putting on the shades while they were walking out towards the car, and it seems like here it's a case of Oedipa adopting the habits of to to use your paradigm that you brought up earlier, Katie, um, the the the, par- the paradigm of the oppressor to try to solve the oppressor's puzzle. Yeah, I definitely think there's there's some borrowing there for sure, and I I, I do think that there's part of trying to conceal a part of her identity in what she's doing. But she also uses it very practically in the chapter because there's a mention of the fact that she um, moves her eyes but not her head so that she can look around a room but not make it seem as though that that's what she's doing. Um, so I think it's also an element of her trying to sort of change her mind state to one where she can more cleverly sort of infiltrate these places and look for the information that she's trying to get. And that's that's the point, especially when you look at the, the, that particular paragraph where she's looking around behind the, sh- the sunglasses. Um, it She's being paranoid, making sure no one's watching her look around, and yet nobody cares. Exactly. Something else I wanted to bring up that happens a little bit after that. Uh, when, uh, when Kotex... And Oedipa first meet up, and he um, kind of offhandedly mentions the the waste address, and then she stumbles, not recognizing it as a as a clue, so to speak. Initially, he says, "Forget it." Um, then him, Metzger, and Oedipa meet up, as the book says, a few days later at the scope. My wondering here is, was there some sort of an intervention that Metzger? brought Kotex in kind of going back to him and saying, Hey, we need you to, you know, push what Pierce is trying to do uh, so that we can continue on the the kind of path that we're trying to keep her on. Or did Kotex just simply have a change of heart and, and decide to go back and, and discuss this with someone possibly because this is the first person he's come across that had an interest in it. Where, where are you Seeing Kotex go to the bar with them. I it was on. Let me see. It's on page seventy. Um, I, I maybe I misread it, but I thought that they or that he had gone there with Metzger. Metzger, who'd come along to the scope that evening, wanted to argue. I think it's. Um, I think you might be mistaking he, Fallopian with Kotex because they do. I'm confused. Yep, yep. That's yeah, it. They, oh, they that's do talk about hey, that. Makes sense. Yeah, they do talk about Kotex, like Fallopian and Metzger and Oedipa, but 
Yeah. Which that part, I mean, it is, that's one of my favorite parts of this chapter, if not my favorite part, is, um, is the, the, I think it's, uh, Fallopian's discussion of, you know, he talks about the cortex is a part of an underground of the unbalance. Uh, how can you blame them for being a little bitter? Look what's happening to them in school. They got brainwashed like all of us. Uh, and then later on, then they grew up, they, then when they grew up, they found they had to sign over all their rights to a monster like Yo-Yo Dine. Uh, a little bit later, being ground into anonymity. anonymity. Uh, nobody wanted them to invent, only perform their little role. Um, which does that, that, those few sentences, that could describe a few different, um, it does, off the top of my head, kind of remind me of the uh, the counterculture in the 1980s a little bit too, and the way that that's treated in, in popular culture. Uh, but that does seem to be kind of a general countercultural like summary of of the counterculture in America for the past 50, 60, 70 years. And it is also a commentary on American exceptionalism, I think, as well. Oh yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Um. So on on that note, since you brought that up, Luke, I he also. That's where we get the mention of um, surplus theory, which was a term that I probably should have known from back when I was in high school and was reading a lot of um, Marx and and other kind of things of that nature uh, just from being a high schooler. But that was so many years ago, I guess I'd forgotten about it. Um, but I think that obviously it ties back to what he was talking about earlier with you know, people not owning what they have and, and the treatment of, uh, of people who work for these large corporations. Um, but I think to, to bring that up in the time that he did, because the sixties was kind of, I, I don't want to say that that concept didn't exist because it absolutely did, but I don't think it really took hold, um, until the later, part of the 80s like when Reaganomics had really sunk its teeth into the the economic system in this country um i i find that kind of really prescient of, of Penchon to know you know how bad that was going to become but um to to mention that i think goes back to those kind of obscure references that that he was bringing into the fold yeah and the the person who mentions the surplus value theory is Metzger. And the interesting thing is that we have, yeah, as you know, in character for Fallopian, his normal anti capitalist, but also anti communist uh, raging. And we have Kotex, who is, you know, maybe relatively apolitical, but railing against this aspect of capitalism. Um, and the only person who's standing up for the principles of capitalism is this guy who is essentially the symbol of control in the book. Yeah, that's a great point. Because especially, if, I mean, if we're looking at some of this stuff as as deconstructions of capitalism or pointing out the inherent flaws in it, the only people that it, as an economic theory, really supports and who would be actively invested in its continuation are the people who hold control. So having the one person who does hold control you know, bring that up and have a have a higher level understanding of how it actually functions makes perfect sense for what he's doing. And then 
to to kind of return back to the the theme uh, the, the the paranoia that's running you know through all of this at this point um as as we talked about at the beginning of the chapter we see how this whole situation that's that's really at this point we kind of really have seen how wide and, and expansive it is um and how much importance it is gaining in Oedipus life um on page 72 let me pull up the the quote um she's talking about you know she's uh, seen the historical marker at uh, Lake Inverarity and it says she would give them order. She would create constellations. Next day, she drove out to Vesper Haven House, a home for senior citizens that Inverarity had put up around this time, uh, around the time Yoyodine came to San Narciso. So, I think I don't remember what chapter it was when uh, there was that planetarium kind of reference about you know projecting. Um, I can't remember the exact quote, which is a shame because it was a great line. Um, but this this sense of Oedipa trying to take everything that's coming at her and, and and make sense of it it kind of goes through what we've been talking about with all of these episodes so far and i think is is kind of the main uh the crux of the story here of, of the importance placed on all of these symbols whether or not it's real um it's real to her and it's hard to not feel bad for her in this situation knowing that you know, she's investing so much of herself into this at this point. Yeah, it's true. And I think a lot of that comes down to whether or not you think Pierce is doing this for her, or if you think Pierce is doing this as a as a punishment, if if you think it's coming from him at all. Because if you take what she says about her life seriously in the first chapter and how she felt like her relationship with Pierce was a chance for her to kind of understand her experience, understand how she's ended up feeling trapped like she is, and that she could have made her way out with it, then there is an interpretation where Pierce giving this process to her, putting these people in her path, helping her discover these different things, is trying to to give her that. And so the the question is whether or not that's a particular theory you buy into, um, I personally do not, but it is true that there is a certain tragedy to the character in that she has so completely lost track of what her own life experience means and, you know, what she really has going for her in life that she is choosing to invest so heavily into these different symbols and ideas that she's coming across because in her mind it must feel like, well, I can't understand my own experience i can't understand why i feel the way i do i need to grapple with something i need to give something meaning so i'm going to invest in in what i see and i'm going to invest in in what i can and the first thing that comes to her whether it's by pierce or not is this massive underground alternate you know post system that she is determined to figure out the the solution behind but ultimately really doesn't um that is an inherently tragic char character trait and storyline that that recalls who she's named after very cleverly yeah and i think it's i think what makes it harder for me not harder but what makes me feel more for her is that she seems to understand that there may be nothing to this because she says even a few pages later um when she's talking to um i think it's when she's talking to thoth 
um, that she says, you think it's really a correlation. She thought of how tenuous it was, like a long white hair over a century long. Um, it's, you know, she, she understands that correlation is not causation, mm-hmm. but she can't let go of this. Like this, I, I, it's just at the point now that this is the central part of her life. And I think this is, this also, and again, for this to be 1966, um, is, is astonishingly prescient because you see so many people nowadays who fall into these conspiracy theories and I don't want to get too much off in the weeds on this, but I, I was having a discussion a while back um, with someone about how people can get into that. And it's, I think what it comes down to is you, you spend so much of a part of your life and invest so much of your life into whatever it is you believe that you can get to a point where you can even see how it's full of fallacies and it's, it's completely irrational, but you're so bought in at that point that to let go of it and to step back and say, oh my God, I'm wrong, is a hugely life-changing event at that point. And it's, it's really hard for people to make that step out of it when they're so invested in it. Yeah, and uh, in particular, I think it's a couple pages before the, the hair reaching the facts um is this line um she could at this things recognize signals like that as the uplift as the epileptic is said to an odor color pure piercing grace note announcing his seizure afterward it is only the signal really draws secular announcement and never was revealed during the attack that he remembers and yeah that that's kind of the moment of conversion in your terms katie and it is kind of the epitome of you've crossed where you're too invested in this framework that you don't really have a basis for. Right. And to recall the the fact that, you know, she is very purposely named after a tragic character, I think that's the inherent tragedy of it, in that she grabs a hold of the first thing that comes to her that she can sort of help sort out to, to return to that, that Maxwell's demon um, theme and sort out fact from fiction and reality from folklore, that it may mean nothing and she may never actually trace down the, the end of the plot thread, so to speak, but she's willingly walking into it because it's such a viable alternative to her to what she's doing, even if at the end of it there's going to be no trace of how she started simply because it's been a part of her life for so long um which again if you're someone who's who believes in the theory of of pierce setting all of this up that could also be the most cruel thing that any of these men have ever done to her um in understanding that not only was he capable of saving her from her circumstances and her her sort of drab life that she was living but then when he didn't do that he returned from the grave so to speak to explicitly make her life even worse. Just thinking about it in those terms, you know, it's even possible that he would think that he was doing her a favor, demonstrating the sheer control that people like him have over her life so that she lets go of that dream of freedom in in his mind. Obviously, it's still incredibly fucked up from that perspective, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. it's a different kind of fucked up. Um. My son, when a couple of days ago, I think he was asking, he wanted me to bring up a question on the on the show, um, 
I told him I would I would ask you guys, but I'm probably not going to actually leave it in the show. But he wanted to know if uh, let me he he texted it to me too so that I could get it exactly. I could quote him exactly. Um, where the hell did it go? Oh, here we go. Uh, if if Tom and Pinchon, Thomas Pinchon invited you to spend one day with him, what would you do? Oh, God. Well, it'd be hard not to just spend the entire day looking through whatever library he has in his house. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then just, I would have so many questions for him about just either interpretations of his work or references that he made. Like, just, you could spend probably an entire week just picking that guy's brain with all of the information that has to be in there. Yeah. And see, that was my initial, like, knee jerk reaction too was to say like you know i would want to talk to him about his work but i get the feeling he wouldn't want to talk about his work he probably and not it, yeah, they, yeah based on that that discussion uh michael chavon published in the new yorker like 15 years ago now uh i think the most, most likely plan of action would be to sit down smoke some weed talk about some tv and then um, yeah d dig into like does he really think, because it, there's a reading across all of his books that I, I have, and maybe I'm just crazy, um, that Pynchon genuinely believes that Gnostic-style epistemology is a transcendent um, act. And I would really want to kind of ask him about that. Is that just something he plays with in the same way that uh, James Joyce and Finnegan's Wake plays with the Verotian um, cycles of history, or is it like, do you actually believe this, dude? That would be a good one. He he would just be fun to probably just get high with and like listen to music. Like I'm sure that would be a good way to spend an afternoon with him too. Yeah, I kind of get that impression. I had, um, God, I don't remember when it was, like 2013 or 14, maybe. No, it had to be after Inherent Vice. Uh, so it was probably like 2015 or 16. I, I got to meet uh, Mike Reese, one of the showrunners and producers for The Simpsons. Uh, he had written a book and he was doing a book signing in town here. Um, and I, I had to ask him you know, about Pinchon being on the show and what it was like. And he basically was saying like it was just kind of like what you would think it was like. That all of the nerdiest writers from the show, like guys who had left the show years ago, when they found out, they showed up at the recording studio just to be there. And that he just kind of wanted to talk about how much he liked the show and just talk about random TV shows. <laughs> um, okay, so I think where did we leave off? We had talked about... Okay, we were just talking about the conspiracy giving it meaning and order. Um. I want to kind of talk about the this theme of urban expansion comes up again when she's talking to Thoth and he mentions um, picking the dandelions and how the uh, what I, I picked the dandelions in a cemetery two years ago. Now the cemetery is gone. They took it out for the East San Narciso freeway. That idea that nothing is sacred at that point in in that they would demolish a graveyard to build an overpass or a freeway or whatever the case may be, just that, that constant need for we have to keep expanding and, and making things that will drive the economy and that will make money. Um, it's, I, I think it speaks just so much about where we were you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 
and where we are now that that kind of thing still happens like there's that that feeling of of nothing being sacred you know you can't even have a graveyard that can stay in one place because it has to move so that we can keep things you know we can keep being the the big industry um i think that it's it's just one of those aspects just like entropy that kind of sits through a lot of a lot of Pinchon's work like he would have seen a lot of that happening pretty much no matter where he lived as far as the places he lived were at and you know obviously the first thing that i think of is is the part of inherent vice when Doc Sportello is visited uh, by a potential client who tells him that his entire neighborhood is just gone, that he got out mm-hmm. from prison and it just disappeared, and it's being you know set up for for luxury condo developments, um, and these these houses that are being built by Wolfman. So it seems like it's, I don't, I struggle to to connect what it might mean, in the grander scheme of of crying of Lot Forty Nine, um, but I do think that it just it is one of those things that comes up in in almost every book that he writes at at some point or another uh this is a bit of an aside but since you mentioned dandelion wine i did in my in the course of my research come across uh, the fact that pinchin is a really big fan of ray bradbury um exactly why that is i i don't know i mean i like ray bradbury um just fine, but I don't. I don't view him as like some type of some type of uh, like great author. But Bradbury does have have a novel called Dandelion Wine, um, which I do think that the inclusion of since Pynchon is on record, um, I think for he did some like grant application for for something where he mentioned how into. Bradbury, he was. Uh, it, I do think it could be perhaps a, a reference to the novel by Ray Bradbury because it is one of Ray Bradbury's more famous novels. Yeah, very well could be. It could also be a reference to, you know, all of the expansion that Pierce in Verity was involved in, like those scenes where, you know, stuff keeps getting pointed out to to Oedipus, like, oh yeah, he owns that, or oh he started that, or oh he's involved in that. Just kind of giving this this general theme of expansion in the state at the time that it's it's getting to be so you know all-encompassing even beyond just pierce that these these industrialists are 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 plowing over uh graveyards or they're 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 funding you know the building of a freeway to the state government because there's there's so many people coming to these areas for the developments they're building or the jobs that they're that they're creating so it could just be another example being inserted there of of the consequences of what people like Pierce can sometimes bring about. Yeah, and in particular, that's a that's an instance where it's not Pierce doing these things. It's just right. You know, it's not just this one bad guy who's in charge of this one city in Southern California. Yeah, it's the whole system. Right, but it but it is also. I mean, he's definitely inadvertently responsible for it by you know, means of what he's doing. He's, you know, his, his constant buying up of things and expanding things is, is allowing others to do exactly the same thing. So even if he's not directly uh, responsible for it, he's still responsible by proxy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so another, another theme that I, I, I noticed throughout his, um, his work, specifically the California novels um, is this, he always references TV. I think that's pretty clear. 
But I think specifically in this Vineland and Inherent Vice, we get a little bit more of that um, TV is bad for us, even though we all consume it, it's not helping us. And I think it's kind of pivotal because the time that TV really started to take off was also the time that all this expansion and this uh, uber capitalism kind of really started uh, rearing its head. And with a character like Mr. Thoth, who even specifically says, um, he calls it a filthy machine, but he still keeps it on. Like it's always on to the point that it's infiltrating his dreams. And I think that is kind of true for a lot of us. I don't think I can find anyone who, you know, doesn't consume TV. I think it's a little different now because we, I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, excuse it or anything like that, but we have more media available for us to consume that we can pick and choose the things, you know, we want, maybe we have more access to like educational media and things of that nature than they did, you know, in the sixties, there was probably three or four channels, I think at that time. Um, but the, the idea of it being a means of putting people in a complacent state so that they kind of just ignore everything else that's going on around us. That was, I think a big part of the counterculture movement was the idea of, you know, kill your TV and, you know, stop letting that, you know, kind of act as a blinder to what's going on, you know, turn it off and, and pay attention to what's happening in the world. But it was so pervasive at this time in history and still is that it's, I think it can still be seen as that. Yeah. I think a more modern equivalency would probably be social media. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. But I, I think that's, that's very true. I, I think that we've developed into a world now where um, so much of what, we interact with as far as as human beings is is strictly online or strictly over social media and it really i think over time has the chance to to kill people's ability to to interact in public and interact in in you know in-person friendships and to take notice of those things because they're not they're not as you know they're not telegraphed as easily when you're when you're in in the real world because it's not constructed it's just happening in front of you as as you experience it it isn't a piece of content that someone decided to create for a particular intention yeah and in particular in this book you know so much of it is about trying to sort the wheat from the chaff um and so much of it is mm -hmm. about how much okay how much does edipa know how much does edipa know that is from pierce how much does edipa know that isn't from pierce and answer to those questions becomes elucidated um in the context text of about television you know he, television and modern social media um and especially which is especially things like reels and tiktok which are like the the end result of the you know you have three tv channels you just watch whatever they're playing except that it's algorithmically generated for you in a That's metaphorical sense edipa is surrounded by an algorithm in the form of pierce's will which has directed that she interact with all of these different people and gives her um, this sense of purpose that may or may not be real. One thing I find interesting about Pynchon's TV obsession is that um, from a commercial standpoint, um, which I don't... Viewing, like, thinking that Pynchon is writing, um, is doing his writing just for um, the commercial value of his writing does does seem to be uh, wrong to me just kind of innately. But 
one thing I find interesting about the rise of TV as opposed to books is that, you know, Pynchon was born in the 30s, I think. He would he would have been growing up in a time before uh, TV was was kind of part of the monoculture. And um, he he is like, you know, his books and at, like even books nowadays are competing with uh, stuff like TV for the people's for people's attention. And I do think that his obsession with television could be a symptom of the fact that, you know, his writing is is increasingly losing the battle to people uh, paying more attention to the television than they are to books or newspapers. Um, which I do think is is perhaps part of his obsession with television is that it's it, it was on the rise at this time and it eventually kind of overtook. You know, like watching the news on TV is 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 how more people more people even at this time I think probably are watching the news on TV than than reading newspapers and that kind of competition between the written word and um, television does seem to be a kind of underlying. Um, theme for his obsession with television. So just to bring back up a, a theme that I, I've just noticed on this read through with the podcast, um, we have in this episode, this chapter, sorry, uh, we have a discussion of dandelion wine and kind of implications of like, you shouldn't be watching TV, it's bad for you, uh, which seemed to me the same vein as the, the earlier things in chapter one where Oedipa and Mucho do the little things that make them not part of the mainstream, but definitely not actually subversive. You know, making dandelion wine is an easy and cheap way to have an alcoholic beverage, but it really doesn't actually undermine the liquor establishment in the same way that growing your own herbs doesn't change agriculture. Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing that's interesting about the specifically this mention of of TV and the sort of damage that it can do or the the distraction that it can be is that it's coming from Mr. Thoth, who, you know, as I mentioned earlier, as the Egyptian god was the you know the god of uh, he was a scribe, and so his job was writing down uh, the history basically. And so it, it makes more sense when you think of it that, you know, he's this, you know, to, to see it as a character like that, uh, a, a deity whose responsibility is, you know, keeping track of history, um, it makes 100% sense that they would not like something like TV where, you know, it, it kind of distorts the, the presentation of the information in such a way. Uh, so I thought that was an interesting you know, character to have specifically mentioned their disdain for TV. Um, did we have anything else plot-wise that anyone wanted to go over? Or do we want to jump into quotes? We can jump into quotes, I think. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Okay. Um, okay, so going over the quotes, I, I don't think I had as many with this particular chapter. Did, did anybody want to start with one that they particularly liked? Uh, mine would have definitely been the the seizure analogy quote which we read out earlier in the in the episode that was my favorite of the of the chapter for sure um that that whole paragraph is really excellent says she could at this stage of things recognize signals like that as the epileptic is said to an odor color pure piercing grace note announcing his seizure 
Afterwards, it is only this signal, really dross, this secular announcement, and never what is revealed during the attack that he remembers. Oedipa wondered whether, at the end of this, if it was supposed to end, he too might not be left with only a compiled memories of clues, announcements, intimations, but never the central truth itself, which must somehow each time be too bright for her memory to hold, which must always blaze out, destroying its own message irreversibly, leaving an overexposed blank when the ordinary world came back. In the space of a sip of dandelion wine, it came to her that she would never know how many times such a seizure may already have visited, or how to grasp it should it visit again, perhaps even in the last second, but there was no way to tell. She glanced down the corridor of Cohen's rooms in the rain and saw, for the very first time, how far it might be possible to get lost in this. I think even beyond just the the really excellent imagery of the quote, it it sort of predicts what the end of the book is, certainly, um, for those who have, who have read it and are circling back on a reread. But I think the other part of it, too, when she's talking about the idea that these these seizures, so to speak, are going to be possible for her again and again and again, that it is also shaping her mind at that point of conversion, not just as it relates to Tristero and the the alternate postal service, but also the fact that she could easily fall into the trap of any other conspiracy that she comes across, where now her mind has been formatted to to not just get lost here, but if she starts noticing similarities in symbols or meanings of other things, she's no longer going to be able to just ignore those. She's going to to feel compelled to try and trace them down and track them down. So especially that coming at the end of the chapter where she's gone through that conversion process, you know, to completion and understands the historical impact of the organization that she's come across this time. I think it's a really genius quote to have placed there because it just shows how completely her brain has been reshaped by the whole experience thus far. One thing I found interesting about that section is, um, I want to say the Pynchon Wiki gets into this and or the uh, my guide to Lot 49 that I have gets into this. Uh, but there at least used to be, uh, before the rise of medical science, um, a, a link between religious mysticism and spirituality and kind of the more, um, like, I mean, one way of, one word for it, I guess, would be Gnosticism. But there's a link between all of that, like, religious uh, epiphany uh, with epileptics in the in the history of, of Western culture, um, which it does seem to be, you know, she, the, the feeling of, that she has of being on the verge of, of realizing something, and that's something um you know it's described as too bright for a memory to hold which does seem to speak to um a certain like kind of ineffability of whatever she's realizing like whatever whatever she's on the verge of of almost like you know she's almost on the verge she's on the verge of epiphany but doesn't quite get over the hill on it and doesn't actually seem to realize something which is kind of a a way that you could view the the book at large, um, where there there is a few times, even in this chapter, um, I felt like with the discussion of 
the uh, the Indians um, as it relates to them wearing black feathers and some being fake Indians and some being real Indians. I, I did personally feel like I got this weird like feeling that uh, Pynchon was addressing, which we haven't gone over at all this episode, but the Pynchon was addressing the JFK assassination in a, in, in a somewhat dangerous way. I just couldn't quite put my finger on or really communicate exactly what that whole thing is. You know, like I, I felt like I was on the verge of of um, Pynchon really like fucking himself in terms of tipping his hand on him seeming to be like revealing some some type of innate truth about the JFK assassination. But I don't think it ever really like he never really like actually delineates um, that epiphany that I felt like the narrator seems to be right on the edge of. Um, I found that entire part really interesting as well, yeah. Well, just, uh, it's not a quote, I guess, but you brought up that uh, false Indians who stirred the bone black with their feathers, um, and they knew that they weren't really native tribes because they came at night, and native warriors never would because if they died at night, they would wander in the dark forever. Um, and that, in in concert with the the last paragraph discussion about the dandelion wine's memory of the highway reminds me a lot of um, Mason and Dixon with the spirit they interrupt. Um, another thing that kind of occurred to me with that kind of stuff, the mixture of, of bones and stuff, we do get a mention of a of a skull, I think, being on the cover of, of the book where the play is the... the um, the dialogue of the play is written in the book and one thing that the death is just around the corner guy gets into is um more i think more in the i don't think he links it to lot 49 i think he talks about it in as it relates to gravity's rainbow um the cia's uh, origin is the oss and the death is just around the corner guy michael s judge links the oss with the uh, a like outdated Latin word for uh, bone, which is os, I think is how he pronounces it. And so, I mean, there you know, like the, the fact that there's a skull mention and then there's a fair amount about bones, and that the bones thing could be related to the OSS and the CIA. Um, I forget where I was going with that, but um, does seem to kind of work into his whole like the the thought that this is. The whole book is kind of a a metaphor for the JFK assassination. It seems to be kind of like a deep cut, um, you know, maybe reaching type of conclusion to draw. Um, but I did find that kind of interesting to think about. Well, it, it makes you wonder if the bone thing wasn't some secret thing that we still don't know about that the CIA was involved in during you know World War II or whatever. Or the Cold War, that he's constantly directly referencing that we as lay people have no clue about. So it's possible. Yeah. If if nothing else, yeah. it it prompts a lot of questions about what those things mean in concert with the rest of the book. Absolutely. Um. So I want to kind of backtrack to the the quote that Katie brought up. Um, I because that yeah that was one of the ones that I had highlighted as well. But I also had one uh, just a page before that kind of the the imagery of it kind of 
gave me the same impression. It's where uh, it says she looked around, spooked at the sunlight pouring in all the windows as if she had been trapped at the center of some intricate, intricate crystal and said, my God. Um, because this is when she's talking to Thoth and she sees the, the waste symbol on the ring. And I, I, it kind of highlights what Katie was talking about where I think this is where she's like seeing how, you know, those rays of light, like she's in the center of this whole big thing, this, this intricate crystal that she is essentially trapped in now. You know, like we talked about earlier, she's, she's at this point that she's kind of crossed that threshold and is now fully bought in on this and there's no going back. And to, I think kind of, in a way have this sense of looking at herself from outside a sort of almost like a like a ketamine experience you know and and seeing like how she's enveloped in all of this and there is a weird kind of of beauty inherent in it in that you can see all these symbols and and make these connections and everything like that but it's it's also at the same time frightening because you're stuck in this situation that you have no control over anymore at this point you're just kind of doomed to continue finding these symbols and continue making these references and connections. Yeah, and the the lines immediately following that um I I feel are really uh kind of I don't know they they unify all of these themes together with the and I feel him certain days days of a certain temperature said Mr. Thoth and barometric pressure. Did you know that? I feel him close to me. Your grandfather? No, my god. It's just uh, all of these different things that we've kind of been talking about, like between that stretch from the, you know, Oedipa looking around through to the Oedipa realizing that she has the kind of aura of a seizure. Yeah. And looking back to what we were talking about earlier in, in you know, she's going from a place where she's trapped to, to what she feels like is a place where she isn't trapped. You know, because she's she's discovering these symbols, she's looking around, and she's she thinks that she's sorting out meaning from from all of these things that she's experiencing. To use that specific imagery of of being trapped in a crystal, like it, it very much recalls the position that she was in in the beginning of the book when she's talking about that that analogy of of Rapunzel in the tower, is that she feels like she isn't there anymore because she's doing something that she feels has meaning, but in reality, there still is a part of the back of her head that knows that she simply migrated positions, but moved no further forward. So then I have a, I have a full quote. It's not related to this, um, but I will present it with a question for you folks with physical copies. Um, there's a stretch I highlighted here, um, and I wonder if it's on the back cover of any of your copies. Um, has that ever happened before? She had to ask. An 800-year tradition of postal fraud? Not to my knowledge. Oedipa told him then all about old Mr. Thoth's signet ring and the symbol she'd caught Stanley Kotex doodling and the muted horn drawn in the lady room at the scope. Whatever it is, he hardly... Apparently, do we tell the government? What? They know what do. He sounded nervous or suddenly in retreat. No, I wouldn't. It isn't our business, is it? And that just sound that seems almost like an engineered back of the book quote. Uh, the back of my physical copy just says "waste." Oedipa wondered, 
Mine doesn't have any direct quotes from the book. It has blurbs from reviewers and a very, very short one-sentence summation of the book that I wouldn't even call it a summary of the book, but no, no quotes from the book itself. Yeah, mine just has a blurb. Okay. Yeah, it's just uh, for some reason when I read it, it was just like, well, that's almost marketing copy. <laughs> it is a good... Uh sort of encapsulation of what the book is about. So on that note, I, I wanted to bring this up for all of us, whether you have a physical or um, the ebook copy of it. I, I cannot make sense of this, and I don't know if I'm just maybe misreading it in some way or another. There's a quote on, on my copy. It's on page 69. And I'm going to read the whole paragraph because it's only a sentence, really. But it says, Oedipa rested her shades on her nose and batted her eyelashes, figuring to coquette her way off this conversational hook. Would I make a good sensitive? Do think. Is that how it appears in everyone else's copy? Or is mine, does mine have a typo? Or I, I can't wrap my head around what that, that do think part. Yeah, that's in my edition too. I have the Harper Perennial Modern Classics one. That's, that's, that's the one I have on, too, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, mine, mine is an ebook from Penguin and it has the same issue. Yeah, I think mine's the same as well. Okay. So I, cause I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if that, if that's a typo, it's survived every copy that I, that I've seen at least. But I can't, I, if, if it's intentional, I don't know why she would suddenly talk like that. It makes no sense. Uh, it reminds me a bit. And I, I, I don't think this really what it is. It seems like a typo. It seems like the kind of thing where your brain is just so used to alighting the you that you just understand what it means anyway and right editors over it um but it reminds me a lot of that beat kind of literally dropping random words um just for the sake of coming across as cool and loose it's an interesting way to look at it yeah yeah it could be i mean i get the the would i make a good sensitive part i get I, it's just yeah it's that missing you that yeah it could just be a, an editor missed it but then it survived or it could absolutely be intentional i I have no idea. I don't know. That just struck me. And I, I realized I was spending, like Adipa, I was spending way too much time focusing on <laughs> something that wasn't an actual thing. And I finally had to make myself stop. Would I make a good sensitive to think? I mean, it, it scans. It, I mean, it's obviously not grammatically correct, but. it Maybe it has to do with the, the kind of character she's putting off at that time. I don't know. I don't know. Um, do we have, uh, does anyone have a, a most pinch on part of the chapter? Well, uh, yeah, I do. Well, I, just before we um, move into that, I wanted to ask another question. Oh, yeah. Um, there is a, right, right before she starts talking to Mr. Thoth, where there's just a completely unnecessary series of a fat nurse ran in with a can of bug spray and yelled at the fly to take off so she could kill it. The cagey fly stayed where it was. You're bothering Mr. Thoth, she yelled at the little fellow. Mr. Thoth awake made a desperate scramble for the door. The nurse pursued spraying poison. Is... Why? why? What, what is that? I don't know what to make of it. Um, so just to kind of jump in, the, uh... I actually didn't put this together until you just talked about it, but, um... To do my every episode, I mentioned this fucking guy, uh, the self-published guy. 
with uh, the new, the new close readings of of Lot Forty Nine. He did have a whole article about uh, this book as it relates to the environmentalist book uh, Silent Spring, which I own a copy of. I haven't read it. I do know that it it goes on a lot about the environmental effects of DDT. Um, so just calling the the insecticide, uh, the anti anti fly. Um, whatever is does seem to kind of speak to the fact that you know i don't think it may not have been this kind of seems kind of weird i do have a relative that i think died of ddt poisoning and stuff like um but i i don't know how widely known it would have been that ddt and anti-insect uh fluids and stuff like that would sprays would would be like super unhealthy so i focus on the word poison there whenever you just brought it up and that does seem to kind of play into that i just kind of took it as a just a comical scene that was in there to kind of break the the i don't want to call it tension but just the the drama that's been building up just kind of a, a moment of humor you know this guy's basically passed out in front of a tv watching cartoons and then there's a crazy nurse that runs in to spray hairspray or fly spray on a fly that's landed on his head i i don't know i didn't really find any really deep meaning in it. I just thought it was kind of a humorous little interlude. Yeah, I just kind of read it as an illustration of how long he's been sitting in that chair, that he's being mapped as potentially the inanimate object by flies. Okay, all right. Just was curious, because it, it, for some reason, really stood out to me as out of place, and I don't know. Okay. Uh, so for me, as far as the most pinch-on part of the chapter, it's kind of a... Um, a real easy swing it, it for me just the idea of inserting the cornell arm alma mater song um as yo-yo dine's kind of anthem um that was just hilarious and and very uh just felt very pinch on i think my my pick for the most pinch in part of the chapter i already kind of did the whole quote earlier when i was talking about american exceptional exceptionalism but the the phrase an underground of the imbalance, um, I do feel like that could be kind of a view of the sixties in general, where Pynchon, more so than almost any other author who I would associate with the counterculture in the sixties, is negative about that counterculture. And um I do think one thing that the glorification of hippies does seem to miss out on is um to maybe appropriate Judeo-Christian terminology is like how how broken um, mo- like so many members of the counterculture were, um, and how like to to be a member of the counterculture at that time would speak to a certain amount of dissatisfaction with mainstream culture, and um, perhaps you know as it relates to things like trauma or um, lack of lack of intellectual or different types of freedom. Um, you know, I don't, I've read stuff about the sixties that would never describe the underground as unbalanced. Um, but Pynchon more than most seems to be well aware of, of how fucked up a lot of, a lot of hippies were, uh, in the head. So. Yeah, it's a good point. Cause they, there definitely was a, a glamorization of a lot of those figures at that time. I spent, I mentioned this before, I spent a good part of, of high school and my early college years reading a lot of 
the not not the fiction literature that was coming out of that time, but, but the nonfiction, specifically Abby Hoffman and a lot of the the so-called Chicago Seven, the the Yippie movement, as it were. Um, and you could kind of you could kind of get that feeling from what they were writing. There was a lot of internal tension that existed in the in the community as far as there was never a a sort of unity or a unifying idea of how things should be done there was a lot of talk of you know what shouldn't be done and what's bad and what needs to be done away with but there was and i think it kind of falls into why that that whole subculture imploded as well there was never a there was never an exit door there was never an answer to it it was always an identification of the problems but there was never really a solid solution in place that could be tenable and would would hold up. And I think that was a lot of what caused them to melt down was that it was really just built on ideals and ideas. And there was never enough forethought put into how we can make this sustainable and how we can make it work. Which is something that has never really changed. I mean, you can look at the the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone that sprung up um, in 2020 and how that had a lot of the same ideals as that that hippie generation. And eventually it it devolved after only a couple of weeks where people were getting murdered and it just fell apart because it was it was there was no leadership. There was no structure of of an understanding of how it needed to move forward or or form itself into to a genuine way to promote change. Any other um, topics we want to go over? I guess uh, the Pinchonian part of the chapter to me is probably um, just the whole Thoth, Pony Express, Porky Pig mix-up thing. And that, that is, that's full Pinchon right there, is yeah, someone yeah. just rambling, alternating in sentence, sentence to sentence between like, Oh yeah, there was this marauding band of people who dressed up as Apache warriors that attacked the Pony Express. Hey, did you see that episode where Bugs Bunny and Porky Pig were making bombs for the anarchists? And yeah, sometimes I feel God. That 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 just whiplash is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it. So and that's funny because to go back to what Katie mentioned earlier about Doc being kind of a pinch on insert like i that doc that's doc like that kind yeah. of like rambling from one thing to another but there's a loose connection between all of them but it's just so rapid fire um god yeah that absolutely 100 percent agree um all right so to wrap up uh i did want to bring up we did have someone on the subreddit that shouted us out and i, I just wanted to give them some thanks for their kind words um, so user Cheryl four, five, seven, um, on one of the threads I put up about, I think it was a chapter two episode, uh, said pinch on newbie. I've read crying of lot 49. Now I am rereading, but listening to your podcast first, before I read a chapter, your insights help me, uh, understand and notice thoughts and words I missed on the first read. Very helpful. So really appreciate that. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that we can, um, contribute to your rereading and and i love finding people that are getting into penchon now and uh, starting to explore his works so um 
would love to hear from from you again um, when we wrap up and and as we go through and what you think of his other works. Yeah, thanks for getting in touch. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and and again, as we've mentioned before, you know, please email us mappingthezonepod at gmail dot com. You can drop a comment in on the subreddit, and you know, one of us is bound to see it. Um, I also wanted to say thank you to Connor, who reached out to us um, a couple weeks ago and offered to uh, help us out with editing. And this episode is the first that Connor has done for us. So I just wanted to uh, send some thanks there and really appreciate the help with uh, helping us get this thing done. So that's it for us. We will be back next week with a discussion on Chapter 5. We are approaching the end at this point we only have two chapters left and then we're going to do a wrap-up episode and then move into our next book i'm not going to mention what that's going to be just yet um but again thank everyone for listening we really do appreciate it and we would really love to hear from you all um your insights your thoughts any comments you have would greatly be appreciated and we'll see you all next week bye see y'all thank you for having me on